Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. Today, we bring you a really fun conversation with Avanti Sintre. She's a number one best-selling author and almost as impressive in my eyes, an avid world traveler. We discuss how her travels have impacted her writing and how current events shape the things that we write about. We also dig into the power of propaganda. Her latest novel, Cleopatra's Vendetta, deals a lot with the power of information and who wields it. Just a ton of fascinating conversation around that, as well as the real history of Cleopatra. Cleopatra's Vendetta comes out November 15th and is available for pre-order on Amazon. You can find this and other works from Avanti on vanops.net. And as always, we will repeat this information in the show notes. As always, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe and give us a rating because that's how we get discovered. That's how we grow. And without further ado, here's Avanti. As a former Silicon Valley IT director, you like that transition? Uh, yeah. <laughs> as a former IT director, I would, I would imagine that you know a thing or two about um, technology and that getting getting the right audio and things like that is is was well uh, within your pay grade. Um, <laughs> you have a really interesting yeah. resume, even outside of um, writing, obviously. Um, I would like to get just a brief summary of how you got into writing because as you talk about on your on your website that you had a life before writing as as most writers do or outside of writing and just how did you get into writing and what what kind of prompted you to finally pursue uh, published writing yeah so that's a great question as as you mentioned um i do have quite a bit of of varied experience in my life i uh, was a lifeguard for a little while in college and then started doing you know it stuff because that was what i was graduating with and graduated from purdue and a couple years later after working in um, los angeles for a couple years i thought oh man there is more to life than just sitting behind a desk and you know doing it stuff so i saved up a bunch of money and traveled around europe and I had always wanted to be a writer, and while I was in Europe, I thought, okay, this is my big chance. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna jot down some notes. And um, we were backpacking across uh, Europe, and um, <laughs> so when when we would finish reading a book, we would tear out those sections because we were trying to save every little ounce. You know, as we were traipsing around, the backpacks were so heavy. But I did have a pen and a paper and started jotting down some ideas and just thought, you know what, I do not have nearly enough life experience. I don't know what I want to say um, when I'm writing. So I, I know that I'm going to do that someday, but I just couldn't figure out sitting there on those Greek beaches exactly what I was going to write about. So I eventually made my way back to America and uh, did um, a bunch of different things. Um, I've flipped probably 18 houses in my day and have that wow. IT career that um, spanned everything from technical to executive. And in about um, 2013, I had a little health scare. You get one of those phone calls from the doctor that uh, you don't really want to have. And as part of that process, I started to you know, look back over my life and think about what I had done and what I had yet to do. And writing surfaced its way up to the top of that bucket list um, because I'd had the opportunity to do a bunch of traveling and, you know, achieved quite a bit of success uh, in my other endeavors. And I thought, you know, I think I want to buy the world a book. 
So between the time I had been lounging on that Greek beach and the time I made this decision, I'd been studying the craft of writing and, of course, reading, right? Um, but I had um, subscribed to Writer's Digest and purchased a number of books and written a screenplay and written some poems. So even though, um, you know, it appeared as though I didn't do anything during that time, I was laying a lot of groundwork studying a lot, yeah. uh, studying story structure. You know, I'd watch a movie and I'd think about, you know, what worked and what didn't work. And so then um, around about 2013, I, I got serious about it. I always hear a, a lot of successful writers will have a, almost like an incubation period where they, they learn about the craft. And for some writers, it's just, you know, I remember going to my grandpa's place every summer and reading 25 novels, you know, every summer and, and, fictional novels and then eventually I wrote a fictional novel or I always had a fascination with World War Two, so I wrote a World War Two, you know, nonfiction, things like that. Um mm-hmm. so that that's definitely resonating with just what I what I've heard writers say in the past. Um not to bury the lead here, but uh we'll get back to writing in a second. But as an avid traveler myself, um I'm very jealous that you went backpacking around Europe. We I did a very short backpacking <laughs> trip around Europe uh uh-huh. after college and I've been itching to go back and do something like that. Where did you, where did you go on your trip? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. And I think this ties in with um, my writing. So we originally planned for four months. We got two year rail passes at the time. This was in the late eighties, probably before you were born um, at the time. Uh, <laughs> he's nodding his head to the audience. <laughs> yeah. um, so at, at, at the time year rail passes were, <laughs> were um, two months a pop. So, and this was before the Berlin Wall came down. Um, This was a really interesting time to be traveling. So we initially planned for two months and um, enjoyed it so much and had a little bit of money left that I think we ended up being there for five and a half or six months. And so this was all of Western Europe. You know, we started in Germany with some contacts that we had, worked our way all the way up to Norway, um, worked our way um, back down through like Austria. And then one of the more interesting uh, little trips was through Yugoslavia at the time, which was experiencing massive inflation. Um, So I can tell stories about that. But then we um, cruised through Greece, back up through Italy. um, And this is, uh, we went through Bari, which um, has uh, a number of scenes in my latest, Cleopatra's Vendetta. Um, So Bari on up through Rome and uh, Venice and down through France and Spain and back up to Paris. And uh, I think one of the best meals of my life uh, was in Paris, kind of in the shadow of Notre Dame. Um, So, so yeah, so we got to East Berlin. uh, So that wasn't more stories because we had to, um, so again, this was before the wall. So we had to take a train from um, West Germany to uh, the West part of um, Berlin, which was separated, you know, surrounded by um, Soviet occupied East Germany. And, um, Right. Yeah. So there were some very interesting um, geopolitical things that were happening in uh, 88. Yeah, I could go on and on about all the places you just listed. That's so fascinating. My, I had a granddad who was a base commander in Germany in the 80s. And so my mom and yeah. aunts and stuff were uh, some of them went to high school in, in Germany and would go to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they they, have, they all have stories about going to West Berlin and even East Berlin and things like that. Just really a fascinating time period of Europe. And I, that's crazy with Yugoslavia. They, I, I actually thought that was 
behind the Iron Curtain, but I guess it was its own thing back then. It was its own thing, and it was before the the wars that happened later, um, and probably you know in terms of precursor to that war that happened, um, you know I don't know in the early two thousands the con- maybe they call it a conflict, um, but the inflation was so crazy that we had to change money every single day, and we would um, yeah think about that so every single day. You know, because normally you go to a country, you exchange money once and it lasts you until you leave and then you go back and you exchange for the next country that you're going to. This was also before the euro. Right. So we had to exchange money in every single country. Um, So we took a boat to Yugoslavia and a bunch of women all dressed in black met us at the boat and um, they were asking if we would like to rent their houses. This is before Airbnb and they all needed money. So they met the Westerners at the ships and said, please, you know, rent our master bedroom. We have a beautiful view of the coast. Um, And walking through the streets uh, to get there, uh, there was um, a goat being roasted in the street, uh, which we jokingly thought was a dog. So it was it was an eye opening experience coming from the United States and all of these other Western countries that we had been to in Western Europe. You know, it was very much an Eastern country uh, with a lot of poverty. We'd go into restaurants and um, we'd order something on the menu, and they'd say, "Oh yeah, we don't have that today," which you know was like, "Wow." really? You don't have something on your menu? You know, talk about being a spoiled American, you know? Um, So it was, it was, it was um, a very, uh, you know, good experience in terms of just being able to see how um, not everybody lives exactly the same way that we live in, in Western society. And then I've also had the opportunity to travel to Mexico, Central America, Guatemala, Belize, and, you know, there are also, um, you know, definite um, uh, pockets of poverty in those countries that, um, you know, make me almost embarrassed to have, you know, a, a large house to myself, you know, with my partner. Um, you know, people yeah. living in tin shacks with just, you know, just little tin over their heads um, and dirt floors. And, and yet they're the happiest people you know, some of these people that I met in Central America, so helpful, um, you know, just will go out of their way to make sure you find the right bus or, you know, so it's, um, I think traveling is, it's a wonderful uh, way to appreciate what we have. And that's one of the things that I like about writing international thrillers is that it hopefully gives, you know, armchair travelers the opportunity to experience life in another place and another time yeah i think that's that's a huge draw for people that are are reading in the genre is just being like feeling like they can be placed into into a location uh i saw one of the comparisons for um some of your books in the past has been the da vinci code we -hmm. actually did an episode on the da vinci code earlier this year and we were talking about how one of the ways dan brown would put you into a scene wasn't necessarily um, descriptions that would put you in the element, uh, maybe emotionally, like talking about mm-hmm. the way the rain hit the pavement and how that, you know, maybe how they were feeling is more about if you turn to your right, you see this building. If you turn to your left, you see this building and you see these kind of cars and stuff. And so it almost like puts you physically more in the frame 
and I think there's a lot of people that really that resonates with them. Like they want to escape to places like Bari or Greece or wherever. Um, mm-hmm. Where in your, without getting too much into spoilers, where does Cleopatra's Vendetta take place? Generally speaking, there's a lot of locations, but yeah. So it it um, starts in Bari and in uh, Jeddah, uh, Saudi Arabia. And it basically takes place throughout the Mediterranean in places that Cleopatra may well have visited. Um, so there's a couple of places in Italy, some places in Egypt, um, some places in Greece. And uh, there, the story starts with an assassination um, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. And it was, man, talk about um, an interesting woman. It was so fun to research her and and her life and so the the entire story takes place you know in and around the the mediterranean sea in her day it took two months by boat to go from uh egypt to rome it feels like it would be more than that in a way like just i I don't know because i don't know anything about maritime capabilities back in that period Uh because she was a rat she was uh caesar was her lover right caesar and mark antony is that right? Yeah, so about 30 years before Christ, 30, 31 BC. Yeah. yeah, and then 20 years before that. It is such a fascinating period. I listened to a podcast series called The History of Rome, which is a very mm-hmm. popular podcast series about the history of Rome. And they spend about probably 30 episodes on Caesar, mm-hmm. but also, also Cleopatra. And that really fascinated me with Cleopatra. She was one of the most interesting people in history, I feel like. Um, and... I feel like in mainstream media, she gets such a bad rap, maybe deservedly so. I don't know if you wanted to, to touch on that. Like, what what are your thoughts doing all the research on Cleopatra? Where do you think she falls? Oh, I absolutely agree with you that she's one of the most fascinating characters in history. She was dealt an interesting hand. You know, she was uh, 18 when Caesar defeated her father. And so, you know, she's got this... Um, you know, this country that's rightfully hers and her brothers and has just been taken over by, you know, the Romans. And so she um, rolls herself up in a carpet or a, a sack of some sort. And that's, you know, how she introduces herself to, to Julius Caesar. I found most interesting was some of the, um, to kind of compare Rome at the time to Alexandria at the time. And I don't know if the podcasts that you're listening to go into this at all, but um, at the time, Egypt was kind of like New York, and Rome was like a, a western backwater town with saloons, um, you know, unpaved streets. Mm. Alexandria had, um, they had like moving escalators. They had statues with lights in the eyes. Um, they had coin-operated vending machines. They had, you know, a full calendar. So Rome... Um, Octavian Julius Caesar, they adopted a bunch of the technology, if you will, that um, that Egypt had. But from the standpoint of women, uh, they were also very different. So Romans at the time, um, according to the research I've done, um, they kept their firstborn daughter, then they killed all their other daughters. So it was uh, women were barefoot and pregnant type of thing in Rome. And in Egypt, women were owning property, owning businesses, you know, and had this leader, Cleopatra, right? So once yeah. um, once she and Caesar worked out a deal, he set her up to rule Egypt, which she did for 22 years. And so from the standpoint of, um, you know, sort of modern uh, life, 
you know, Egypt was much more progressive, you know, because we think about Rome and, and how much uh, of our current culture comes from Rome. But in many senses, Egypt was much more progressive, especially at the time. And yeah. Octavian used that to defeat her and Mark Antony. So I don't know if you caught any of this, but from my research, so she ended up aligning with Mark Antony um, against Octavian. Uh, so, you know, about 20 years later, after she was with Caesar, they uh, they they were at war because Mark Ant- there was a civil war in Rome. So Mark Antony and Octavian were duking heads, and Mark mm-hmm. Antony had aligned with Cleopatra. Well, one of the things Octavian did was he put out a bunch of leaflets and a bunch of early propaganda making Cleopatra look bad. And, and associated Mark Anthony with Cleopatra. So it was um, sort of a Hillary Clinton type of, um, you know, but her email type thing, you know, where they were, you know, she was a harlot and a whore. And, you know, because she was a, a female leader, they, you know, were making her look bad. And they were able to get, as a result, um, more men to the cause and eventually defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra because of this big propaganda war that they um, were engaged in. They got a lot more people. So from the standpoint of uh, propaganda that's happening today, right? Like just looking at the bill that passed this week, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the propaganda on both sides about that bill um, is just, fascinating right so these guys 2,000 years ago were doing the same stuff with with propaganda you know and and even then it was um, a couple hundred or a thousand years old the propaganda techniques that that they were using Um, so a big part of this book is about propaganda and how that has played out throughout history particularly you know as it related to to Cleopatra so so absolutely yeah. she was extremely pivotal and if she had won if she and Mark Anthony had won that battle um, and won that war I think the world would indeed be a very different place because he had 40 some years um, to make her look bad and I think that's part of why these days all people think about her is, oh yeah, she was pretty and she seduced those two Roman guys. But no, she was a polygot. She spoke like nine different languages. She ran the government. You know, she was queen, empress, goddess. She was all of it. She had coins made in her image. She was a highly intelligent, very fascinating person. And, and you know, my, my novel takes place mostly in present day. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not a historical novel, um, but yeah, um, Cleopatra, A Life by Stacey Schiff uh, is one of the main biographies that I used for my research and um, just fascinating life this woman had. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, when you talk about Cleopatra losing this this propaganda war and then losing the physical war and then how history remembers her. I'm reminded of the the quote that your novel opens with. It was the, the quote by, you know, one of Hitler. the most vile and propaganda loving guys that's ever walked the earth and i think it was something to the effect of what the victor something about victors getting to write history i believe the victor will not be asked if he told the truth i think is what it is yeah Um, 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. So the, the victor, so. yeah, but essentially, yes, the victor gets to rewrite history. And so Octavian did that. You know, he smashed her statues, you know, throughout the Mediterranean. So we really have no idea how much damage was done to her legacy. Yeah, yeah obviously, when, when you're going through this research for this novel, which obviously you've done quite a bit of research tying in, the real life of Cleopatra and finding ways to make a fictional story out of it. Where do you draw the line between what happened in Cleopatra's life and like real history, or what we believe to be real history, you know, what is you know, what what is believed by historians to be real versus what you're going to turn into fiction? Because again, I, I'll bring up another the Da Vinci Code novel because there are some similarities. I think about how one of our complaints when we were doing the novel was there was elements that they wanted to fictionalize about. Um, Spoiler alert if you haven't read The Da Vinci Code. Um, but there's not, there's elements of the novel about this real church sect that is in that is doing bad deeds to try to do something that again you'll you'll right. learn in the novel. And that feels fair game, but then there's like then there's clues and answers to puzzles in the story where it's like the answer is the fact that, you know, Mary Magdalene is the one sitting next to Jesus in the first supper. Well, most people think that's John the Baptist or whatever. So I'm just curious, where do you draw the line and say, like, I'm not going to change history? Like, I know, like, this is mm-hmm. supposed to be one thing. I'm going to leave it that way, or I'm going to I'm going to fictionalize this element. Where do you where do you kind of draw the line? So usually, what I do in my books is I make up one really big thing, and then I try to keep everything else as as true to history as possible. In this case. Uh, I think it would perhaps spoil the surprise a little too much to go into too much detail. But at the end of each of my novels, I separate fact from fiction. Um, so people who want to know, you know, hmm, how much of that is, is really real. So we've got Cleopatra leaving a few clues throughout the novel. And, you know, that's part of the, the, big, the big fiction. You know, basically, I've got her hiding a treasure. Um, And so that is fictional along with the clues that she hid. But there's quite a bit of fact in there, including, um, you know, historians think that she may not have died of a snake bite. Um, Oh, really? And yeah, there's um, a lot of historians believe that, you know, she had a year to plan so after that horrible naval battle where she and her lover Mark Anthony were defeated, she basically knew that Octavian was going to come for her. So they retreated right. to Alexandria. Well, it took Octavian almost a year to, to come after them. And so she had a year to plan. And from what I've learned that historians think is that snake bite poison causes a lot of convulsions and is very painful and she was not found to be when they they found her um, and her two maids dead she did did not look like she had gone through um, a significant painful event Um, and yet Octavian called in uh, this group of people called the Silli with the thinking that she had endured a snake bite and these um, these silly, mm. which maybe where we got the word silly from, I don't know. Um, they uh, <laughs> they 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 were called and and apparently you know whenever he talked about her death, he talked about it um, with the snake. And there's some thinking that 
So uh, up till that point in history, the snake in Egypt had been a symbol of divine authority. You know, a, a lot of the images that you see of the pharaohs have this little snake on their forehead called the uraeus. And that's because it was so the, the snakes did a bunch of good things for the Egyptians, including keeping rats out of the storeroom. And, you know, they transform. Right. So they shed their skins. So the Egyptians thought the snakes were cool. Romans, not so much. And when you look at, you know, the Adam and Eve story in the Bible, the snake has been vilified. You know, the snake is, you know, basically yeah. Satan personified, uh, you know, and, and tempting the Adam and Eve to, you know, eat of the forbidden fruit. And so there's, uh, you know, some thought, at least in my head, that Octavian may have taken this opportunity to continue with the vilification of the snake um, instead of having it be this cool royal thing. Um, it's this evil, nasty thing. Um, so who knows? Um, but to answer your question, there's you know quite quite a bit that's that's factual. And in this story, so my my prior three stories, the Van Op stories, there was just a little bit of fantasy where the the main character, Maddie Marshall. Um, uses uh, these crystals to throw ball lightning. Um, she's able to mm, yeah. um, adjust her, her energy uh, to channel her energy into this um, this crystalline lorandite and throw ball lightning. Uh, this story doesn't have any of that, so it's very much grounded in, you know, today, space, and time um, with, uh, I, I heard that you're from Texas, so the heroes are part of the Futures Command there in Texas and uh, are, you know, special ops people with all the usual special ops stuff, which is why I'm kind of describing this one sometimes as like a Mission Impossible meets Da Vinci Code. You know, uh, Robert Langdon, he doesn't have any special ops skills, but my, my heroes very much do and are also trying to save their kidnapped daughter and save, you know, Stryker's, Timothy Stryker's kidnapped daughter. Your characters are... Um significantly more capable than robert langdon it sounds like because robert langdon was he had one proficiency and then was kind of along for the ride and it was kind of one of those typical something larger than me is happening which your story has that as well but at least they can handle their own physically right they've got their special ops and their friends are special ops and all that stuff so um right they can go tit for tat for some of these for some of these opponents so i kind of i kind of uh interrupted you but you were talking about how their daughter was kidnapped and i know that where this story takes place um you listed the coastal mediterranean saudi arabia obviously like getting kidnapped by you know folks from that area is pretty scary when you're going through a historical um or a a fiction with historical elements obviously you might want to be speaking to a larger theme can you speak to you know obviously you chose cleopatra and she's a and she's a powerful woman obviously you've got these this kidnapping that happens in this region of the world. Can you speak to, you know, how that theme plays into what, what maybe you wanted to convey about the world in, in the way that, again, the, the Da Vinci Code talks about our relationship with religion and state. Um, just like what, what mm-hmm. happens with her daughter and, and how that kind of played into your writing. Yeah. So one of the themes of, you know, in this book is the war between the sexes, you know, men and women. Right. Um, and uh, men and women have kind of, butted heads for, you know, probably about as long as we've had men and women. Um, so between uh, that theme and the, the propaganda theme, um, I think the sex, sex trafficking, kidnapping part 
um, you know, definitely ties in with the war between the sexes theme. Um, it was interesting when we traveled there, Bari felt a little creepy to me. Um, really? We were, it, it did. Um, I was traveling with a woman who was, who was very blonde and we got a lot of cat calls and a lot of, you know, hey baby kind of stuff. Um, you know, we were cute 20 year old somethings, you know, walking around with our little backpacks on. And, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, maybe we're lucky that, that we weren't picked off. Um, you know, the, the yeah. book ties in with, uh, you know, the mafia and, you know, Sicily is the birthplace of the mafia. Um, even though the, you know, initial kidnapping and like that is fictional, um, I think that, you know, people traveling today should be a little more wary than um, the women were in the bar in the second chapter of the book where they let some guys buy them drinks and the bartender puts some roofies yeah. in their drinks. And next thing you know, they're getting loaded up into a van. You know, three three grown women um, and two children are, are being loaded up into a van um, with uh, this cult organization uh that is fictional um has relationships with the mafia and i don't think it's that much of a stretch uh when i was doing research um you know the sex trafficking trade is a multi-billion dollar a year industry and so i live about an hour from sacramento and sacramento apparently is one of the bigger hubs for sex trafficking you go into the um you know the bathrooms at the airport and there's you know posters now which is great that they have posters for women in the bathroom. You know, if you are being a victim of sex trafficking, call this number. Gosh, you know, how sad is that? That, you know, that there's just hundreds of thousands of young women and young men. You know, it's not just women. Young men are also kidnapped and sex trafficked or trafficked for labor. You know, there's people um, all over the world who like to prey on, you know, other people and will you know, take them places to where they can't, uh, you know, escape. So um, I, I try not to go too deep into that, you know, just enough to where it, you know, provides a lot of the suspense in the novel. Um, there's some novels that are just like super deep and super heavy and, you right. know, are dealing with uh, very difficult subjects and I kind of wanted to walk the line with this novel with you know so Stryker um, you know is basically so we've got a little bit of a taken type of approach here where you know his wife and daughter are kidnapped um, and it, it just happens to tie in with them you know the kidnappers are sex traffickers they're also assassins and archaeologists you know so that all kind of ties in together but uh, yeah, nobody's nobody's raped on screen, um, but that unfortunately does happen quite a bit in real life. Yeah, absolutely. There's I, I have too many anecdotal stories. I have um, you talked about just in general getting offered drinks at bars and foreign places or even places in your home. I have friends that mm-hmm. have been like I, one of my buddies got you know woke up on a park bench with a broken nose and no wallet. He was like, what mm. happened? You know or. Mm. Story. I mean, stories in our neck of the woods of people just like a van pulling up and trying to snatch somebody in the middle of broad daylight and in a suburb of, you know, a suburb of a nice area. It's just, it's, it's crazy. It's not a new thing. I think it's getting more reported. I think maybe it is getting more frequent, but it is a, 
it is a scary mm-hmm. happenstance and um i think it's important to call that out that like you have to be careful when you go to these awesome places um like greece like bari don't know so much about saudi arabia don't don't have i've heard a lot of <laughs> i feel like most of the things i hear about saudi arabia on the news is not like a great place to travel but uh maybe teach their own maybe there's some safe places but you know we thought about going to morocco but at the time yeah. you know there was a lot of mm, young american girls don't want to go to morocco um so yeah at the, at the, so you know at the time morocco was um you know perhaps a, a hub um, but yeah, I've also heard here in Sacramento of vans pulling up to the Arden Fair Mall and trying to, you know, take take young women away. I think that any any parent or any any person uh, needs to be aware of their surroundings, and um, if people can, you know, take some self defense uh, classes, I think that that's great. But I think um, so. One of the things. Uh, I, I end the author's note with is a quote from a Greek guy from 2,500 years ago who says that, you know, something to the effect of one of man's most discerning capabilities is a judicious sense of what not to believe. And I think that what not to believe can be true for, you know, somebody that you meet at the mall, hi, um, or something that you, uh, you know, read in your social media feed. I think it's it's important to trust but verify is how I go through life. I think that yeah. you know you you build trust over time, um, and I think there are, you know certainly you know places like Airbnb try to build pr- trust through reviews and like that. Um, but I think that we always need to just be aware that um, even if we might be the most warm, loving, caring, you know, type people that not everybody comes from that same place. You know, a lot of people, right. um, there are bad guys in the world. Yeah. And it's sad because it, you're a hundred percent right. That then that's kind of how, you know, me and my family approach things, just being uber cautious with, with strangers and people approaching you and stuff but it's gotten to the point where anything related to like anybody trying to sell me anything or coming up to me in a foreign country i just immediately put up a wall and just assume the worst thing in the world's about to happen and and that maybe maybe that's good maybe that saved me in a situation that i don't that i don't realize that it did but then there's also times where it probably backfires or i just i probably appear very um like closed off you know those those uh yeah. those hidden camera shows like what what would you do where uh-huh. they'll have a actor come up and ask you for help and i would be the guy on the show that would be like get away from me because i just <laughs> i i'm so trained at this point to be like somebody's gonna try to sell me something or try to grab my wallet when i'm not looking or whatever um yeah it's tough though you have to especially traveling especially going to places like you said like bari um these beautiful places that they're looking for dumb tourists like myself they're looking for people who don't speak the language who have their phone out and are mm-hmm. looking around clearly not sure where they are that I, like yep. that is their perfect prey if you will um mm-hmm. and like we said at home as well so it's it's scary but vigilance is needed um it's crazy um I said earlier it used to not be like that but i was again i go back to another podcast listen to um mm-hmm. i listened to this story about a um child abduction in the 30s and Mm -hmm. how when the police were going through this stuff it's like a very a and b case 
for what we might okay. see today, but they had mm-hmm. no idea how these people worked. They were like, wait, why would somebody want a child? Do they not know this person? Like, is this not like an aunt? And like, they had to go through all those scenarios mm-hmm. to be like, wait, some a stranger wanted this child? Like, they, they it was so removed from the public eye that uh-huh. they never even imagined that there would be trafficking or anything like that. Um, right. So, yeah, again, I don't know if it's more prevalent now or if it's or if it's just more talked about. I mean, I, I certainly, like you said, I appreciate that it's getting more talked about. That you see things at airports that. Mm-hmm. you know hotlines and little tips and suggestions I, I love the fad that's happening lately where um women will walk up particularly women will walk up to other women that look like they might be going through something and they'll mm-hmm. act like they're their friends have you heard about that just be like hey i've been looking for you and like grab them by the arm yeah and i've actually heard of um somebody that we know who did that with somebody um at the at a mall in Sacramento and it did turn out to be somebody who was in trouble. Um, so I think that's a great trend. Oh my goodness. Um, the not so great trend I think is the, uh, the advent of propaganda. You know, I think that having worked in technology, it's, it's really interesting to see the intersection of like the, the double-edged sword of technology. Right. So when I grew up, we didn't have cell phones. Um, we didn't have the internet. And as the, those things have become more and more and more prevalent, the amount of disinformation and distrust in what used to be, um, you know, accepted forms of journalism and information has just crumbled. It's been this perfect storm of, you know, I'm going to believe what my friend ate for dinner, but I'm not going to believe what the New York Times has to say, you know, about X right and you know we used to have these yellow journalism laws where news outlets had to report on things that were just true Um, but that also went away or expired somewhere um, I don't know in the 80s or 90s I want to say somebody told me that that was something that Reagan let slide Um, but as a result you've got um, uh, so deep fakes play a role in this in this novel and uh, oh man, those yeah. terrify me. And well, you should be terrified because um, you know it used to be that we could trust what we saw, right? You know, and if we saw somebody running into a build, burning building and pulling out a small child, you know that actually happened. Well, the artificial intelligence is getting so good um, that uh, that what we're seeing um, may not actually have happened. And that um, I do think that Russia and uh, especially um, is using um, bots and other bad actors to um, plant a lot of information in here in the United States that's not necessarily true. Um, And I think that because we've got this milieu of social media and the lack of trust, um, you know, based on this, this, changing technology i think it's just this fascinating recipe for and we're seeing it play out right um you know just fascinating recipe for uh a lot of um disinformation in our world 
Yeah, I'm like I I feel like I'm a, at least a little complicit in the sense that I was talking about a second ago how I don't trust people that are trying to sell me on something. And maybe that's uh-huh. a good thing cuz maybe it tells me to not trust the article that comes across my feed, but then there's also a part of me that, you know, if I see a news story or whatever, it's like, did that really happen? Um it, it can cut both ways is I guess what I'm saying. And right. that inherent yeah. distrust of people is particularly scary because um it also plays into how we interact with others on the street. Like you've heard and seen how people will mm-hmm. this disbelief on social media of art and then the political arguments that transforms into how we treat each other in person. And it's just, it's getting crazy. Um, and all on all sorts of mm-hmm. levels, not only like you said, misinformation, but how we handle misinformation, how we, how we treat the carriers of misinformation and, and everything in mm-hmm. between. It's so hard to parse. Like it's yeah. the whole saying about, you know, not killing the messenger, you know, yeah, and how do you research your sources, right? You know, um, so I think that it would be nice if, you know, we started teaching in high school people how to separate, uh, you know, good, good articles from bad or current yeah. articles. You know, last week there was this big, you know, brouhaha about how Alex Jones, how the FBI got his phone and had a bunch of pornography on it. Um, well, it turns out that that article was from 2019, and hmm. apparently he was he was acquitted of that. So being able to use you know your mind to dig a little deeper, right? Instead of just taking the headline, being able to dig into it and did that really happen? When did that really happen? You know, who reported on that? You know, was it um, a reputable news source or was it something that you know? might have come from Russia. Um, so it, it would be nice if there was some, you know, education training on that in high school. I know I'm just throwing up a pie in the sky, but I think it is really important for people to make up their own mind about everything, right? Um, yeah. Because, uh, because we're all born to parents. Some of us, you know, get to grow up in with our parents. Some of us grow up with foster parents. Some of us grow up um, you know, maybe in orphanages without parents, but we're still subject to information that comes at us from, you know, parents, news sources, schools, governments. Um, you know, think about if you grew up in North Korea, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. I read a book about that once and just, you know, how they completely limit the information that comes into you, even in this day and age. Here in America, we get all this information, right? It's a cornucopia of information, but which of these bits of information do we want to pay attention to? You know, right? Um, so it's it's a challenge for every human alive right now in terms of uh, figuring out their their own filters, you know, and and what they choose to believe. Yeah, where do we like? I know we've, we've talked a lot about like personal onus, but you talked about our freedom versus North Korea, there's, you know, yeah, I, not to get crazy political, but, you know, there was a, what was it called? The, the the information board or the disinformation board or whatever. I forget what it was nicknamed or even called, but it was this um, branch of, I think, the executive government they were about to start out that was, like, going to help regulate some of this stuff, and then it got nixed. Just this idea of things have gotten so out of hand with disinformation. Do we Do we start to regulate that? You know, and there's obviously been a lot of talk about social media regulation of fact and fiction, mm-hmm. right? Do you start right. to regulate that? How do you prevent that from becoming Orwellian? 
and right um and not like fall eventually fall into the wrong hands so it's just like it's i don't know the answer i'm just posing it's just an interesting give and take because clearly we're not like there's a lot of people that are not responsible enough to not to sound like i'm better than people but there are folks that are having a difficult time discerning what's real and not real and to the detriment of their lives and the people around them and it's uh it's it's not just a funny issue it's not just like political you know back and forth there's it's it's larger than that in some instances so um right and it crosses the divide too you know it's it's the right and the left it's very much you know china and russia and it's there's a lot of people you know even advertisers you know everybody wants you to believe something about something so it's not it's not red blue uh it's um you know you watch tv you know we we worship the super bowl commercials right those are trying to get you to have an opinion about their product um so it's uh you know it's 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 ubiquitous it's interesting to see these fast-paced novels that you, you mentioned earlier mission impossible um and how that is being transitioned a lot in particularly written media to turn into more of a like a thoughtful piece like thoughtful pulp fiction works um yeah smart smart thrillers was there yeah smart thrillers is it, yeah that's a good way of putting it is there um what kind of leads you to speak to some of those topics is there um will you just be like brainstorming a book and you think of what the theme first or you think of the the fun story and how the theme could be integrated um and you know are there any is there anything else that i think that maybe is is percolating in your mind for future works that you might want to write about i think that the the theme um for me is kind of the scaffolding that the whole story sits on um so i had a a book uh, the doomsday medallion come out in march and it was about um the my first uh first title for it was visions um because it's about seeing the future and about a medallion that Nostradamus um, may or may not have had that helps people to see the future. And so everything in the book uh, revolves around that. And, and so that's kind of the, the germ of what I put together from the get-go is, you know, the, the theme and the characters in the story kind of all have to play together um, from the get-go in order for i think um a real powerful book because i do like i I love action anybody that's read one of my books uh will you know understand that i love action but i don't believe that action without caring about the characters is nearly as emotionally powerful i don't when i'm reading a book that i'm like ah who's who's this guy that's in the shoot 'em up bang bang I don't, yeah. I don't have any connection to caring whether he lives or dies, right? So for me, it's important to have that element of suspense to really care about the characters. Um, and then the, the smart parts of, you know, having some, you know, history, science, and maybe some greater mysteries thrown in, they're integral to my stories. When I start thinking about a, a new novel, uh, I have to put together the, the theme, the characters, and the plot kind of in in a nutshell uh, before I start writing. Um, So I'm a big outliner. And so if if, like all three of those things aren't working together, you know, right off the bat, like with the initial uh, concept, um, 
like with uh, the Nostradamus story, the Doomsday Medallion, I knew I wanted to to have a story about visions because uh, Maddie Marshall um, uh, and um, her her mom um, work for Van Ops, which was which came out of the ashes of a CIA secret group that had people doing out of body experiences. So I wanted to tie all that together. And when I kind of came across the idea of using Nostradamus in that story, the Doomsday Medallion, I kind of had my theme, my historical character, my current, you know, protagonist, and it all tied together really well. And so those are the stories that I like to do um, the best that uh, have, um, you know, an, an integration um, and then the the history and the science um, and, you know, maybe some life lessons uh, just, I think, help differentiate a, a good book uh, from a great book. Um, you know, along with you've got to have that character growth to make you really care about the characters um, as they're embarking upon that action. Well, it sounds like your book has all, all the things you just described. It's got action. It has a a bunch of a, a heavy cast of nuanced characters it's got obviously a lot to say about our our past as well as our future uh to get cliche um <laughs> it it just i yeah i'm 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 excited to read it w- when is this book coming out tell us about where we can get it and where we can where we can sign up for for that yeah so cleopatra's vendetta will be out november 15th right now it's available for pre-order on amazon people that maybe want to check out my earlier series or just sign up for my newsletter can do that at vanops.net which redirects to avantisentre.com vanops.net is just a little bit easier for people to remember but uh yeah, I, I give away a lot of stuff through my newsletter, and of course we'll be you know announcing uh, when Cleopatra's Vendetta is available. It will um, eventually be available for sale on all of the usual online retail channels, um, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Apple, Google Play, etc. And um, if your local bookstore doesn't carry it, you can ask for it, and they can, they can order it. Um, you'll be able to get it through bookshop.org, and pretty much you know wherever books are sold you'll be able to ask for it. So November 15th, Cleopatra, put it on your Christmas list. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. It's already getting a lot of rave reviews. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty happy with, you know, the initial feedback that I'm getting from people. That's awesome. Well, Avanti, it's been awesome having you on. You know, if I, if I ever have a travel podcast, I'll be sure to include you on that as well. I feel like you have more stories <laughs> uh, from your travels that we didn't get to touch on. That, that could be well over an hour in conversation. Again, just thank you so much for for joining us, and it's been a blast. Yeah, it's been very much a blast. Best of luck with your writing. I see that you've got a a new book coming out soon, so best of luck with that. And thank you again for having me on your show, Sam. It's been very much a pleasure. 